It's June 14th, 2022, and I'm back with the Matt McGregor man to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. Uh, let's just start it out with the first one we got. Frank Kendall, KC46, might have worked better if not fixed price. Pegasus, which of course is the KC46, now cleared for 97% of U.S. aircraft. And so this one was kind of funny because, you know, Kendall, who was the acquisition technology and logistics ATNL defense acquisition executive at the time when KC-46 was getting off the ground after fits and starts. Um, you know, he said like, well, you know, KC-46 was supposed to be a low risk program. It kind of met his five requirements for in entering into a fixed price contract, especially for development, which are one firm requirements, two low technical risk, three qualified suppliers, four financial capability to absorb overruns, that is from the contractor, and five continue motivation to continue. Uh, so I guess there's got to be production on the back end. Uh, but he was basically saying here that uh, we didn't look close enough at the design. It was more risky than people, not not me, but people, other people realized at the time. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, he, he's kind of admitting some, there was a little screw up there. And he was also you know involved in that. Uh, but one of his lines here is that uh, the, co the program got into trouble and he says, quote, it might not have if we had been a cost plus program and the government supervised the contractor more aggressively. Uh, so what are your reactions? Yeah, and, and I didn't pull it up, but there was a GAO report done on this that, that I actually uh, thought was really good because they went back and they looked at some of the design changes that actually occurred after the contract had been awarded. And, and there were different things where like it was viewed as, you know, really low risk, but then after they actually got, you know, got into it, they're sort of like, oh yeah, that's not the right thing. I mean, they need to make some changes and they, I think they brought even in like a new technology that was not quite as low risk. So like, I feel like, I feel like from the start, they didn't really have everything articulated very well. And so, yeah, no doubt, no doubt the risk piece was, was a big factor. Um, I think you have to say too, though, that Boeing, Boeing sort of, maybe didn't put some of their A team on on all aspects of this program because I mean even in even in production, right? I mean they were they were doing silly things that, you know, you just wouldn't expect of Boeing, right? Like I mean there was like a ladder, you know, left in one of the planes that had been delivered to the government. There was like tools and all kinds of like shavings and things that could really cause like electrical failures. Uh, their inability to get the RVMS system, the remote visual management system that the operator uses to kind of, you know, connect the boom with the aircraft. Uh, they were like unable to solve that for years. And still, I think there's still issues. So yeah, there's clearly a lot, lot in this. I mean, fixed price for a development effort. Is there ever going to be a development effort that's low risk? I, I argue no, because I think these things are always complex and you get into details and you learn stuff and you have to make changes and adapt. And if you have a fixed price contract, you might not change things that you should. So I think there, there definitely are some lessons here, but yeah, well, my, one of my lessons is just don't do the whole darn thing right up front, right? Like they should have put yeah. milestones throughout, right? Like they, NASA was somehow able to help uh, SpaceX go through, you know, these OTA milestones, which are fixed price milestones. And they got to a pretty, you know, robust design and, and working. <laughs> I mean, with KC-46 here, I mean, it feels like a lot of the, like, so you mentioned all the FOD that was in, the aircraft and it kind of reminded me of the K of the C5 that Lockheed built in the 60s and early 70s where they also had all sorts of foreign objects just like strewn across um and they also like robbed a lot of their best people 
and actually shifted costs from the from the KC five to the or they shifted costs from the the TriStar airliner, so the the private jet they were building. Um, to they shifted those costs over to the C five, and then they took their best people over to the TriStar. And so maybe <laughs> you know the seven eight seven was having some troubles around that time. You know maybe they also kind of did something similar there. But in my mind, a lot of it was just software. And like we know Boeing had kind of screwed up software in a number of these programs. Um, the Starliners one, but also right the uh, the Max. <laughs> the, so right, I don't know. Maybe it's just like moving into a software world and that kind of um, complexity is kind of outstripping, you know, more hardware oriented legacy, you know, provider. Yeah. I mean, I definitely don't, don't disagree, but I, I think they're, I don't think they had a good grasp on the, on the hardware piece either. I mean, there was, you know, they had all kinds of issues with the boom. They had issues with, you know, like I said, with the RVMS, which does have software elements to it, but there's, you know, there's other aspects to it that were just sort of integration issues more than, more than just uh, just software, but yeah, no, absolutely, software plays into it. And I mean, I think I think the I think the bottom line is maybe the government should have known on this one. Like we we had we did have a fixed price contract for the S, for the small diameter bomb two contract, and there was lots of failed tests, and it was not going to plan. Raytheon lost a lot of money on the development side, but they knew on the back end that they were going to buy, they were going to have a lot of those missiles bought. I wonder if like was the KC forty six production as compelling as something like 787 or some of their other priorities for the, for the, for the uh, program. And if, and if maybe that is part of the, part of the kind of uh, equation here is, you know, if it's not, if, if, if the contractor is not going to put, you know, all of their, their best people or put all of their emphasis and leadership attention, um, you know, then maybe, you know, you can't, you can't really trust them to get the things right because they will take shortcuts or they will, you know, sort of, uh, yeah allow failures to go longer than maybe they should yeah they i guess those those overruns are i don't know if they breached uh four billion or they're like kind of you know approaching that amount but if the acquisition cost is about total 30 billion just five billion was spent on the development contract and then they expect to make you know 15 percent of that so 15 percent of the production would be about 25 billion um, and then so, you can also say, so that's the profit. So they can, they can afford to take a little bit of loss if they're going to go, if the air force goes through with the full buy and then the bigger slice, right. Is going to be like 60 to 70% of the back end will be sustainment. Now, how much is going to be organic or not organic and pay it out or whatever, but you know, there's another, you know, big profit opportunity for them to make it up. Uh, so yeah, maybe. Well, I guess we'll see if the Air Force actually does the full buy because, right, doesn't it? From some of the other stuff we'd seen, they're actually looking at sort of like these gap fillers and oh yeah, you know, KCY, yeah, so, yeah. KCZ. well, KC, yeah, KC, KC. I think those ones will be new programs, but I think they were looking at some of the uh, the European, um, yeah, Airbus European, and Lo- and Lockheed yeah. are teaming. Like, that's a pretty yeah. strong team right there. <laughs> you know, you got you got Europe and you got America. Now you you're gonna say no. I don't know, but it's, the, it's a good question of what's going to happen. Like, will they go through with the full buy? And I think the one of the issues was the early um, cost per flying hours, like $94,000 or something for, for it, which was like several times higher than a KC-135 and 15. So 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that might factor into all of this. If they, I mean, of course, whenever you bring in a new aircraft online, you're going to have this big kind of like learning as like that's going to be dropped substantially as more hit the hit the line. But yeah, I mean, still a challenge. Yes, indeed. All right, let's move on to uh, JADC2. Lawmakers want clarity on the joint all-domain command and control efforts. Who's getting what, when? And that's from Breaking Defense. And of course, you know, here's uh, Congress just like, give me more and more reports. I mean, I kind of feel for them because we reported uh, last time, right, uh, that when <laughs> the Department of Defense came out with their like JADC2 strategy or white paper, it was just like something like sense, decide, act. And not, not much more than that. And I was just like, all right, well, that's not the best thing ever. But, you know, the Hass Committee staff here, um, House Armed Services Committee, they're asking for, they want to fully understand the state of play and understand how to support these efforts. So they're trying to say, do all this stuff so we can help you, right? But they want um, an overview of the Pentagon's current investment plan schedules and cost estimates and evaluation of its process for monitoring these assessment of the department's challenges in developing, developing and implementing JADC2 efforts. So I don't know. It just feels like the whole problem of JADC2, why it didn't really fit in with this program planning, budgeting, you know, kind of system and the way we do programs of record is because there's a lot of cross-cutting technologies, um, you know, network technologies, commercial technologies that need to be integrated rapidly and tested and, you know, worked across, you know, the services, but a lot of programs are going to have little elements of that, right? And remember J ABMS, the Advanced Battle Management System from the Air Force, they had like some amount of money in their program element, but then Congress was like, well, you have to describe every single other program element that has some kind of funding that might be helping this. And it's just like, I don't know if any of that's helping. Yeah. Well, yeah, I actually wrote that ABMS report and it's, you know, it, it was, it's really hard to kind of show like the different ways that ABMS will, will touch all the different platforms, right? Because it's a C2 system, it's going to, it's going to be integrated with everything. Um, I think this actually showed like the LOEs for, um, for JADC2, like the JADC2 data, the human technical enterprises, the NC3, uh, modernizing mission partner information sharing. I mean, you think about that, right? That's like, that's everything, right? So yeah, I totally agree. I think this is not, it's not, does not conform well to a typical program of record. Um, to your, to your point about modular, there, there could be a case made for sort of breaking this into chunks and sort of saying, okay, we get the data, you know, there's the, the infrastructure piece, there's the tactical cloud. I mean, there are some discrete pieces that I think you can sort of chunk out. So I, I, I think we've predicted this. I mean, we've seen sort of like, you know, the overmatch piece, uh, kind of doing their own thing, classified that you know, Congress is saying they're not getting enough information about it. ABMS is doing their thing, sort of, you know, it's been sort of uh, shifting over the years in terms of names and terminology for different aspects of it. So it has to be super confusing to anybody on the outside. Um, and then the Army's, you know, been doing this convergence thing with sort of seems just like there's a million things going on and, and not a clear sort of glide path. So, yeah, not very, not very, uh, um, not easy to follow and not easy to sort of articulate, you know, how much progress is being made. And I think, I think DOD does need to get their act together on that. I think you can't just continue in that way um, with, with external stakeholders. I mean, even the COCOMs don't understand, right, exactly what, what, what they're getting. And so I think they do need to kind of pull, coalesce some of the discrete activities and say, here's what we're doing. 
uh, for this. I thought the Air Force did lay that well when we did the report um, in terms of like, this is the infrastructure and these are some of the data elements and, and so forth. So I thought those categories were kind of right and maybe they can build on those. But uh, yeah, definitely as it is today, I, I don't I, I don't blame Congress for asking for this. I don't blame Congress either, but I do blame them because they're like, give me your full investment plan, every schedule, every cost estimate, yeah, identify fair. every little piece across every <laughs> little. And I'm just like, okay, that's great and fine. But I think what you really want is just like, okay, what are all of the types of like systems in our inventory? What are the waveforms? What connects to each other and what doesn't? Where do they sit within the force structure and then the services? Um, what are the new elements that are being introduced? And more of it just being like, an accounting and an analysis of what has happened as opposed and just like uh, from that information, you can deduce where the future is going um, as opposed to just like, I want like a formal APB for every little like Jadsy two thing. So eventually if I want to, I can push a button and then aggregate every Jadsy two line item and have like a Jadsy two portfolio where I can, you know, have every baseline and IOC of everything and, what's the cost growth of everything. And it's just like, that's, I don't think that's the important part. I think the important part is just like documenting and understanding how this thing is kind of coming together in an incremental way across these stakeholders and identify opportunities for synergies and overlap and um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I think one of, one of the ways, and this is something that, you know, DOD is still maturing, but one of the ways is to look at kill chains, right? Right. Like we're we're trying to get a missile from this platform to a you know to an enemy target. Like, what does it take? Like, what are the com com links? What is the data uh, that has to be brokered? Uh, you know, and, and all those sort of things. So, I think starting to show some of those scenarios will also be helpful. Um, but yeah, totally agree that the well, for one, they're not going to get this level of detail. I mean, some of the things they asked for uh, in addition were like. Uh, a list of potential JAD C2 capability gaps, how DOD plans to address and fund those gaps, and inventory of all JAD C2 related development efforts. I mean, uh, they're going to get pieces of this, but there's that is going to be a really mammoth sort of undertaking. It's probably it probably needs like a you know some type of data of, of database to kind of show that it's not going to be easy to put in a report. So yeah, they'll, they'll get pieces of this, but hopefully, I'm what I'm hoping to take from this is that. DAD just needs to tighten up their messaging on this and also, um, you know, make sure that they do have synchronization. I don't think that has been proven that there actually is synchronization happening across the services so that what does come out the end is is uh, interoperable and can actually uh, play together so that a ship can talk to an Air Force jet, um, can talk to an Army unit. So, yeah, I think they do need to kind of... uh, show that a little bit yeah but i think it starts with the mapping of kind of different types of kill chains or decision chains or communication chains right and then you just can kind of like map it um so it's more of a mapping exercise instead of a long-range future planning exercise yeah absolutely and and there there is some of that i will say like you kind of do know some of the sensor feeds that you need for 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 some of the air missions or some of the sea missions and you know like what assets are out there that can provide you know, to be radars or what, you know, different things that you can get sort of that information from. And then it's a matter of sort of fusing it. So totally great. So yeah, a mapping exercise is a great way to put it. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that always occurs to me is just like, people want something that sounds simple. Oh, just 
what is everything that's in Jadzi too? And what are all your schedules? But then it's also like <laughs> some of that's just not a feasible or even like a sensible question to ask. It's like, because uh, we got inflation on the mind also, you know, what is money? How much money is there in the United States? Right. That was like one thing that they were trying to do in the 70s after Friedman and the quantity theory. It was just like, okay, well, we have M1. Oh, well, we need to, you know, also include, you know, credits and and these types of these types of checking accounts. Okay, there's M2. Okay, well, we also have to have this M3. Oh, well, how about that part? Well, M4 It's just like, okay, so there's no such thing as a money supply. There's no number. It just doesn't exist. Right. But it seems like if you ask someone, how much like you you should be able to just count up the dollars, right? But no, that's not how things work. And I think <laughs> there's a some kind of similarity there with some of these things um, in the Department of Defense. <laughs> that's interesting. I've never heard that analogy, but I think you're right. I mean, especially anything in technology, like you know, I'm sorry, but there is nothing simple, right? As soon as you dig into a program, you're like you think you know something about it and then you dig in, you start talking to engineers and different things and you're like, holy cow, there's like 10 other layers of this thing. So yeah, nothing easy in any of this. Well, and that's the whole point, right? Like every time you like try to collect this data and send it up, you necessarily have to abstract from the particulars of time and place that matter to particular decisions and the contingencies and uncertainties and anticipations cannot be you know, conveyed. And so everything is lost. And by the time it gets to the top, like they imagine because they've got everything, they can make the top decision that directs everyone, but really they have nothing. <laughs> you know? Well, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I agree to a point. I do think that there is a way to communicate with, with different levels of stakeholders. I mean, this is something that even has to happen in a company, right? Or some, some, you know, some high tech commercial uh, kind of, in, you know, industrial um, sort of entity where you still have to communicate to different levels. And this is why I like roadmaps is you're right. If you do have to abstract, <clears throat> but your ability to sort of say at a high level, we we're presenting enough information to give you confidence. And I think that's kind of what it boils down to is we're giving you enough information to give you confidence that we know what we're doing. And if you're not giving that, I, I, I think it is the onus is on the, on the, on the managers to that. Okay. Well, you're not communicating this right. And so, you're right, though. You do need to be prepared to say, this is very abstracted. This is very high level. These are the blocks. If you really want to understand what's going on, we're going to have to go to the next one, two, three, four, five levels. And this is where you're going to really learn about some of the complexities, some of the risks, interdependencies, you know, challenges, all that stuff. I, I think you're right. You're only scratching the surface. That's but. going to blow the stakeholders' minds. They're like, what do you mean? I got like 50 <laughs> other programs just like this. And you want me to know about that? <laughs> you know? But well, it, yeah, they never will. Yeah. But it's a good, I mean, you make the good point, which, and I, the way I would interpret it is um, when you start asking for things, information which is necessarily a prediction of future and then a plan that you're going to be tied to and measured upon it's a fundamentally different thing than communicating what you're doing and your successes and documenting where the money went and what value was achieved and what had been learned that's more of a part of a narrative and like almost like a, a project history and the people have to kind of have tenure and be just like in the know, you know, to like understand that nuance and context. It's not just going to yeah, come well, from well a SAR report, you know? Well, well put. Yeah, no, absolutely agree that it's, it's more about that narrative. And I think, I don't think DOD has done a great job with the narrative piece. And maybe if they, maybe if they had done a better job or if they will do a better job here, maybe they can avoid getting into some of these, you know, details that are not going to be very helpful. Yeah. 
All right, let's move on. The Pentagon promises cruise missile defense lead after lawmakers threaten salary of DOD's number two. And of course, that's uh, <laughs> Kathleen Hicks, DepSec Def. Uh, the Pentagon promised it was going to appoint a lead agency for developing defenses against cruise missiles. And I think that's particularly against the homeland after a House subcommittee sought to impose restrictions on the budget. And uh, Representative Cooper here uh, was wanted to put in a provision into their annual defense authorization act that would limit 10% of the travel salary for DepSec Def Kathleen Hicks in 23 over the inaction. Um, so Biden is the, uh, actually the first request to include 278 million for over the horizon radar specifically for advancing cruise missile defense of the homeland. But it looks like uh, they want more coordination and Cooper's very interested in this. And it was kind of weird because they say, Lawmakers threaten salary, but it's like travel salary. It's not like they're going to dock or pay, but you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, like it's not it's not bad enough for it to be coming like a, a, a DOD political appointee, you know, in the salary cuts. Like we're going to take take more of your payway. Um, yeah, clearly that was like. A, I mean, I'm surprised that it got as much attention as it did. It's kind of a weird thing to do to say your travel salary, but um, I'm I'm confused in general, like. I'm sorry. You have huge organizations that have this responsibility. We have the Missile Defense Agency, right. which is comprised of you know the Army, Space and Missiles has a huge. Um, well, they're huge focused component. more on like ballistic, right? For the most part. Yeah. No, fair. It's it's true, but they're they also have radars and stuff that you know um, can detect you know cruise missiles. We have NORAD and NORTHCOM, which have you know F-16s and other assets to detect cruise missiles and other other yeah, threats and shoot them down all kinds too. Of, yeah yeah we have all kinds of radars i right? mean this isn't um, they're not even like this they're not saying a hypersonic cruise missile which i don't think anyone else has um no one's working on it um maybe they're working on it but yeah it's not like a hypersonic cruise missile they're just like saying cruise missile defense right i'm just my, my point is just that we have agencies who do this yeah um now if we need to restructure it and say Okay, MDA, we, we need, you know, not just mid-course, not just, you know, ICBM stuff. We, we need you to sort of expand your aperture um, and start, make sure you develop some capabilities that can be deployed on the homeland, um, which, you, you know, I imagine there's probably some, you know, some, t some tailoring and things that would need to be done to make, uh, you know, make some of those assets, uh, you know, work for cruise missiles if they aren't, if they aren't already kind of thinking about that. But, you know, there are assets out there and Northcom and NORAD have that responsibility. So I don't really understand this idea of like we need to like establish some new office or something like that. Like, OK, let's just look at the people that are already sort of specialized in this uh, in this mission set. And if we need to expand their or reorganize their roles and responsibilities, let's let's do that. But I'm really I'm really sad to hear that there's going to be another lead, another czar. Yeah. or something and then it's going to be you know the bureaucracy will build around that person and then that will take away authority and you know sort of accountability from the other folks that are that have you know pieces of this mission and it's just sort of i don't know oh i just hate to see that um but good good that the overrides and radars if you know it's kind of it is kind of surprising that we haven't been doing that because i know there was a jew on uh for this exact thread you know years ago for for the air domain uh, so I'm a little bit surprised that we hadn't already been investing in some of those radars. Yeah. Oh, there's tons of radars being invested for all sorts of <laughs> missile defense things, right? But um, 
yeah um it, it did feel a little bit like uh cooper was kind of like trying to bully it was like i don't know what your particular interest is you know on that but it seemed like a weird bully tactic there yeah all right, uh, Houston Startup unveils Stargazer, a Mach 9 hypersonic space plane concept. And uh, the first step here, well, basically, this is based on the rotating detonation engine, which is, I think it's been like tested in Japan. We talked about that. Um, but this uh, US company here is kind of making more strides than I thought. Um, of course, it's going to be a zero mission next gen rocket engine is what they're labeling it as. But it's followed several experiments uh, carried out in hypersonic wind tunnels and test facilities, the company says it will kick off a subsonic and supersonic flight test for a scaled drone as soon as next year. And so um, considering how much they achieved in two years, the quote here is, it's possible Houston-made Mach 9 space plane will be taken to the sky very soon. And so maybe that's uh, 2030-ish, maybe, or maybe even inside of that time frame. But yeah, cool stuff. Lots, lots of There's lots of these uh, different um, hypersonic... Uh, aircraft that have been kind of coming out yeah it is kind of funny isn't it we we find we've always uh the last like number of years we've kind of talked about hypersonic as this sort of uh you know defense unique uh a sort of technology area but really turns out that uh commercial sector might be uh might be beating us at this one too um so uh, i'm skeptical that a mach 9 space play will take the sky very soon but it, but it, it is promising i mean that that uh, they've made as much progress as they have. Um, it's it's also really interesting that they must have had a lot of advanced like investment before this. Um, I don't know the whole story on this particular startup, but I mean, twenty million is not very much for for, for what they want to do. And so the fact that they were able to do it in two months, that you know, have that design complete, they must have must have had some real like a good start on that. But yeah, no, hope they're uh, hope they're successful. It'd be pretty cool to uh, they, had, they had a nice video there. Uh, be pretty cool to take a take a flight, you know, around the world, um, you know, and uh, <laughs> be able to, uh, you know, you know, not not have to sit on a pl- on a plane for uh, for twenty hours. But. Yeah, um, to the future, right? To the future and beyond. Indeed, I think that was. Uh, I don't even remember it. Buzz, Buzz Lightyear. Lightyear. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Pentagon's new AI chief vows to crack bureaucratic inertia on tech advances. So Craig Martell, that's the new uh, AI chief, which is really right the the chief AI and da- dig- digital and AI officer. Is that right? Is it digital? It's da- data and AI officer. Yeah, but this chief data officer is also under him. Is that right? Yeah, the uh, yeah the, the the original Jake is now sort of a, an AI entity underneath the, yeah. the cdao yeah it's weird because like i've seen chief digital and ai officer and then i've also seen chief a- data and ai officer but um i don't know they, I, I don't know what they're gonna call them i, I would just say cdow i don't know but um, <laughs> so the cdow craig martell is gonna crack bureaucratic inertia on tech advances um and there's a lot of references to uh recently released or move quit individuals like Nick Shalon, CSO, and the former CDO and, and all that. Um, but one of the things that, you know, popped out at me here was not that he said he took a not trivial pay cut to go do the job, uh, but that he said, 
with respect, his top priority kind of was on the ethics and the uh, responsible AI portion. And he says, quote, for me, whenever there are lives on the line, humans should be in the loop. And the Pentagon needs to have a robust, robust ethical guidelines for the use of artificial intelligence in warfare to ensure that machines would be 99.999% correct, correct before any were deployed. And I get where he's coming from, but that's also a little bit scary, 99.999, because I don't think any AI is going to really come out with that in an operationally useful context. Yeah, no, no, definitely not. I mean, there's been a lot of thinking on this and, and you know, responsible AI is more the, uh, the, the DOD's way of thinking of it. But, you know, it's responsible AI can be many things. And I think we have to not be so concrete, like, you know, at, uh, absolutist about sort of what what is a reasonable depl- employment of it, because let's just take sort of the Ukraine-Russia fight, right? Um, is it if you were using autonomous systems to, you know, more so than they are, we are using them. But if you if you had a lot of autonomous systems that could, could you know, employ combat capability and you said to them over this line, which is, you know, well beyond Ukrainian forces, let's say that you see Ukrainians deploying them, and you said, you can kill anything over that line because I know in this box, the only thing that exists are Russian soldiers that are trying to kill us. Um, and there's no civilians and things like that. Like in this box, you know, kill whatever you can, you know, take whatever, take whatever tanks, take whatever vehicles, you know, uh, troops, you know, kill, kill whatever you want to. Um, that's, pro- that's probably most people would probably agree. That's a reasonable employment. Now, if you're in an urban setting and you have a lot of civilians, that would not be a reasonable employment. So I think you really do have to look at the context of this. And and yes, humans should be on the loop, whether they should be in the loop, especially when you think of like a high-end fight. Uh, China, it's clear, going to be a chaotic uh, you know, combat situation. If you have humans in the loop in every single uh, weapon system, uh, you'll probably lose, you know. So so yeah, they, we just have to figure out sort of what the what the reasonable employment is. Yes, you don't want to take you don't want to take civilian lives, and so that needs to be front and center. Uh, but I think he might be a little bit too absolutist here. Yeah, I, it just kind of felt weird to me because it was like, okay, ninety nine point nine 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 percent correct before doing anything, and break bureaucratic inertia. I don't see how those go together, right? Because it feels like they're along the same. <laughs> that sounds lines. like bureaucracy, right? Yeah. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, he's probably coming from the Lyft perspective, where it's like, um, if this app fails and this driver like kills someone or does something like that, you know, it's like in that kind of context, I can see ninety nine point nine 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 percent. I need that because I'm going to have a hundred million rides. And if one goes wrong, like in this way, that's a hundred million dollar lawsuit or something like, or Mm -hmm. we might even go under before we've got big enough Mm -hmm. to be able to sustain that. Whereas the DOD thinks like that. I think that that's kind of like similar to how DOD thinks, but like DOD just has to be able, it just has to take more risks than that of or else you just lose because your competitor is not going to, you know, shackle themselves like that. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point about Lyft. I mean, I think Elon Musk said essentially the same thing. Like he was, he was afraid about, you know, full autonomy because it only took like, you know, it only take like one or two accidents to, you know, to cause an issue. And, and it happened. Right. I mean, look at the look at look at the reaction when when uh, there were issues with his with the software. So. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think when he gets in there and he starts to see that, you know, the data that DOD is going to be operating on is not as pure, not as, you know, not as clean as 
you know, you probably want it to uh, either train or execute uh, an algorithm. And so there's there are trade-offs and there's going to have to be some real trade-offs. I did think his one quote, though, I thought was interesting. And he does have some sense of this because he, he did work on uh, Project Maven. But I thought his one quote here of, it's not my goal to come in and change the entire culture of DoD. It's really my goal to demonstrate that with the right cultural changes, we can have a big impact. I think that is the absolute right attitude to have. I think I think um, when you when you bring someone new in, he's gonna have a lot of credibility with leadership because of his industry experience. And I think showing them like, hey, you know, if you change this, if you allow these folks to do this, or you you know uh, enable this kind these kind of behaviors by doing this, um, you know, you can really have a big impact. And I've seen that in my own companies that I've run. I think that will play really well with leadership, and I hope that he can kind of communicate that and make some changes in that way rather than coming in and saying, Oh, this is all wrong. Can you change everything? I think he can maybe make some changes around the edges. that will be impactful. So, yeah. Yeah. I hope so as well. Uh, next one we're going to do Hask sea power marks saves five ships. I said that kind of awkwardly, but the, the <laughs> their mark. So the way that the Hask is kind of making some uh, marks against uh, the president's budget is going to save five ships backs marine corps call for 31 amphibs and we could just get right into it what are they saving they're saving four lsds so uh so that's supporting that amphib right um gonna keep more of those lsds and then they're also gonna prevent the um, retirement of one guided missile cruiser uss Vicksburg, or at least that's what they're you know planning to do and then we'll see what this axe does and then appropriators do uh but yeah. Also, an interesting part here on the Vicksburg is that the Na- the Navy spent about three hundred million dollars per hull to modernize the Vicksburg, and then they're going to kind of get rid of it. But the one thing that um, Congress did not really touch on yet, at least, is the fate of the nine Freedom Class LCS littoral combat ships uh, that the Navy wants to decommission. So we'll see if they just let them just like write that off. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I'm well for one. I yeah, fully support this uh, this action. I mean, I think retiring the LSDs and then also sort of decrementing um, the, uh, the, uh, the the laws and stuff like that, and, and not really you know making sure that the Marines had everything they needed to implement this new vision was uh, you know not not a good way to go. They, the these ships are not that expensive anyway, and so this should be an easy one. So yeah, good 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 on that. The Vicksburg, I think. I think the key one there that that kind of got the committee over the line was that it was like 85% done already. So it was kind of like, you know, and it was one of the younger ships. So, um, so that one sounds like it was probably a good decision as well. Um, I'm sure the Navy will have to make, you know, have to make offsets that will probably be painful, but, um, but yeah, the, on the LCS, the, one of the quotes there was from one of the staffers was there's a lot of member interest on the LCS and that will be addressed at the full committee. So you know, definitely you not over yet, but uh, yeah, that's going to be an interesting one. Um, oh, there was one other thing that I thought was interesting. The mark also directs the maritime administrator to carry out a program to complete the design and construction at Na- U.S. Navy shipyards of up to 10 sea lift vessels for use in the National Defense Reserve Fleet. So, yeah. So it looks like that's getting more attention, too, which I think is what Representative, Representative uh, Loria was kind of making the point on. Yeah, that's actually a good requirement there that yeah, yeah. Um, needs to be done. All right, Raytheon moving global headquarters to Arlington, right on the right on the tails of Boeing, right <laughs> coming to Arlington. Um, Raytheon <laughs> is now going to be headquartered 
in my hometown of Roslyn, Virginia. Um, so now that's a move that Congrats. will be four of the five. Yeah, I don't know. There's tons. Roslyn, when I moved here, like Roslyn, you would just go out and it would be 8 p.m. on a regular day and you don't see a soul. And now <laughs> it's just like yuppies, including myself, all these yuppies walking around everywhere. Can't blame them. I'm one of them. <laughs> but anyway, people are moving in. So hey, Raytheon's going to kind of accelerate that, it looks like, um, down here in uh, Roslyn. And there, this is a move that we'll see four of the fo- top five U.S.-based aerospace and defense contractors headquartered in Virginia. Um, and one of the things that was interesting here was I didn't realize that Raytheon has 60, 600 facilities, 44 states and territories, and all four of its business units have operations in Virginia, and they employ a thousand employees, um, and is the top employer in Loudoun County and Falls Church. So yeah, that was surprising yeah. to me too. Yeah, Falls Church because there's a lot of companies there. Yeah, um, yeah, that one's interesting. I wonder who's the biggest in Arlington County. Um, not really mm-hmm. sure. Falls Church is its own county. I guess it is its own county, but I know like. Northrop Grumman also has their their headquarters down here, uh, kind of near 495 and Route 50. But yeah, everyone's moving moving into uh, Daddy Warbucks land, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it does sound like they did talk about the what the spokesman also said that this is really like a slight expansion of their existing sort of uh, presence and that um, they already have like 130 corporate staff members in it. This was not like a big like increase of its staff or anything. So it does sound like it's a little bit maybe more symbolic in a way. Yeah. Um, but it does sort of tell you something that, you know, if all these defense companies feel like they need to be closer to the action, it's sort of like, uh, you know, what is what does that mean, right? <laughs> yeah, well, Raytheon, they started up there in Massachusetts in the 1920s. Um, yeah. And I don't know what, yeah, been, they're just abandoning it. I know, they've always been a Massachusetts company. I guess that's... Uh, and I think on both it. cases, Boeing, neither Boeing nor Raytheon got any... Um, you know, tax breaks or anything like that, that Amazon did on their HQ2 down here in Arlington, which got massive, you know, but I guess the point is like, well, Amazon plausibly had, you know, other places that were competitive and attractive, where it's like Raytheon and Boeing, where are you going to go? You want to go somewhere else? Go somewhere else. (laughs) You're coming here, (laughs) you know, it's like, I'm not going to give you any breaks because you got nowhere else to go. Yeah, that's true. I was sort of, I was pretty upset about the Amazon decision, like given all the other places that they could have gone and really made an impact. But you're right. This one makes sense. Like it, it's not, this is not like a, <laughs> not a huge surprise. Air Force sees two business models for integrating robotic wingmen into combat formations from FedScoop. Uh, this one was kind of uh, a, an interesting, um, you know, article here based on a Hudson Institute a webinar with Tim Grayson and um, Dan Pat and and Brian Clark, which is incredibly excellent. So I'm probably going to have some a bunch of blog posts on that because there's just gems throughout. Um, and I didn't think the article got through a lot of the gems that I was getting. But here in, in the article, at least, uh, you know, they're kind of talking about you know NGAD and B21. So NGAD, of course, next generation air dominance, and B21, of course, next bomber. Uh, those two programs as being kind of like families of systems. And they'll be able to have some kind of dynamic mix and match between that where they can kind of potentially, you know, trade off who is operating certain types of, you know, loyal wingmen and and things like this. And it's all about kind of integration and compatible data links and all this types of stuff. And it was actually a pretty good um, 
you know, article here, but like the integration into like how that's actually going to work in an acquisition sense, there's just a lot more in, in the actual um, discussion and webinar, which is on YouTube. So I'd recommend people to go see that, but anything uh, you pulled out of this one? Yeah, and I do agree. Um, that was a, a really enlightening conversation. Um, I will say that I, I think they're probably right that NGAD and V21 um, are doing some of this. Um, those are, you know, while they're open systems, they're also very closed systems in a way, um, the way they're architected. And, and so it's possible there. I will just say that outside of those sort of systems, there's a lot of progress that has to be made to implement this vision. This is very visionary. Um, we have a long way to go. I mean, to do this kind of thing, you really do need the, the most robust digital engineering uh, sort of enterprise you can you can get. You need to be at the Formula One level, you know, with all of our all of our platforms and all of our capabilities. Um, this is not this is not easy to do this mix and match and to like you know reform and okay, we'll do uh, you know we'll pair these platforms together and they'll be seamless. Um, you know, man and unmanned teaming has a long way to go. And uh, so I would just say I love the vision. I think I think it's exactly right and. It's going to be very software intensive. It's going to be very digital, digital engineering focused. It's going to also have to be very mission engineering focused. And all those things are maturing. Um, are they maturing as fast as they probably need to? Uh, I'm not so sure, but uh, but yeah, definitely this is this is where we need to go. So, well, on a similar but different note here, first F-35 aggressor dedicated to replicating Chinese threats unveiled from Warzone. Uh, the U.S. formally reestablished the 65th Aggressor Squadron at Nellis Air Force Base. Uh, the, use, the unit will now exclusively fl fly F-35A Lightning IIs uh, dedicated to replicating uh, threats that are emerging from China. And this uh, six, 65th uh, Aggressor Squadron will be equipped with early production units of the F-35A. So I guess uh, put those to good use because they might not be the most mission capable, those first ones <laughs> off the line. At least they're getting some use. I don't know how. Yeah, I, I hope it. that they were able to bring down the maintenance costs because I know like there's after each lot, there's kind of like all these different maintenance procedures, but hopefully they're able to bring those those costs down as the enterprise is kind of scaled up in order to kind of make that make all sense. But yeah, I was interested here that I know you've been interested, so I want you to jump in, but the, the thing that, uh, you know, the generals were saying here is that in the adversary air, uh, the current companies providing those types of uh, services through this massive, you know, IDIQ, uh, they were not providing worthwhile aggressor capabilities for training. And so ACC had to instead, and that's Air Combat Command, you focus on creating their own in-house F-35 aggressor force. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it sounds like they will still keep a lot of the F-16s. They're going to upgrade some of the Block 25s. And, then, and a lot of those um, will still be, or not the Block 25s, the Block 42s, rather. The Block 42s will still get upgraded, some of the, the upgraded radars and stuff. And those will probably still still kind of provide a lot of training. But when you get into the high-end training, this is the stuff that they do, uh, you know, yeah, Nellis and, uh, you know, up in Alaska at the, at the park. Um this kind of stuff, you really do need the high-end stuff. And for a long time, the Air Force really did not invest in in, in the combat ranges um, doing those doing those upgrades that were more re like operationally relevant. So um, so there's a lot of catch-up to do. But on this particular one, um, you know, it is interesting that they did it so abruptly. 
I think they made the point that this is going to result in some near-term shortfalls. So because it's going to take time for this unit to spin up and sort of, uh, you know, get used to the F-35 versus they've been relying on all these sort of like the mirages and honey badgers and all that, all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting they did it this fast, but yeah, definitely makes sense. And I think on your point on sustainment, um, you know, if you don't do the if you don't do some of the upgrades, some of the airframe stuff, if you just accept a lower level of, of life, um, you, you might you just might defer all that stuff. And so I guess we'll see how, you know, if at some point they decide this is working so well that they actually do some of those upgrades to those aircraft. But um, uh, but yeah, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's the only way. You know, one of the challenges that you know these uh, that we've had is that we were supposed to do all of this kind of training through some kind of live virtual construct system so that a lot of it could be simulated um, because some of the capabilities you don't want to have in the open air. And so I, you know, I was always sort of skeptical that they'd be able to get that level of simulation. And, you know, I think they are still having challenges on that front. I think they can do more, but you really do need sort of that actual, you know, um, actual uh, experience at the range, you know, going against high end fighters. So, so yeah, this is a, this is good. This is a good move. I think and, like you said, make good use of those old F-35s. Navy killer. The Army wants precision strike missile to sink sink ships at sea. <laughs> this one's a tough one to get out with all those S's. Sink ships at sea. <laughs> uh, so basically, the PRSM, the precision strike missile that the Army is building, um, it's got a ramjet propulsion, uh, can go 500 kilometers, and they're actually saying, hey, we're going to actually you know, get that... Uh, propulsion tech stack up and be able to go hundreds of kilometers further than that 500. Uh, but the thing here is they want to get a new seeker that will be able to sink ships. Looks like, you know, they, they have some envy with the Marines and their Navy, Naval strike missile. And the air force just kind of demonstrated a J dam sinking ships. And of course you also have El Razum long range anti-ship missile and all these other ones. Um, the harpoon, I don't think they're making them anymore, of course. But yeah, I mean, precision strike missile is going to be going a lot faster <laughs> than than uh, a slower cruise, subsonic cruise missile. So yeah, I mean, it, it's funny that they're they're kind of doing this. I'm sure people are like, oh, well, here's another, you know, roles and missions battle. They shouldn't be doing this. Um, they should just be focusing on, on what they need to do. But, you know, maybe they'll be in the right place and maybe there's like interoperability that they're they're jumping off and it's not a unique development here on that seeker. Well, I definitely encourage people to read your your one blog post where you pulled some of the uh, uh, I think it was from a RAND study, uh, some of the the amount of missiles that you would need to take out a target at, at, at some of these very long ranges. I thought that was really uh, thought that was really informative. And so. Yeah, you know, you're, you're, we're probably right. I mean, someone could probably make the argument that this is inefficient, um, that we, we should, you know, just buy all, you know, all RASMs or, you know, the Navy's updated some of their Tomahawk cruise missiles to actually, you know, be able to target uh, things at sea at, at pretty long ranges. Um, you know, you can, you can probably adjust some of the other, you know, cruise missiles. You could, you know, any of the weapons you could probably modify to, to target a ship, um, a moving target at certain speeds is, does probably make it challenging, but um, it's probably good though for the industrial base and for the, uh, for the, for the larger, you know, sort of military enterprise to have these capabilities, you know, in different, different ways. So maybe the army is the right, you know, right unit or the right uh, force to sort of 
you know, protect this certain area um, of the island chain. And maybe in some cases it's the Navy and in some cases you might need the Air Force. So, you know, I actually support this. I think I think they should all be looking at anti-ship uh, weapons and, and especially if they can modify existing programs to to have that capability in addition to the land-based capability. Uh, to me, it just seems like it, it, present, it provides more options for the commander. So it's all goodness. Yeah, this uh, I want to circle back on on that. Uh, what is the probability of a killing a ship using um, a hypersonic ballistic missile? So that's a ballistic missile in in, in that case uh, that Rand was looking at. Like, so if uh, China has their DF twenty ones, and how like what's the size of the salvo that they require to achieve an eighty percent probability of damaging or destroying a U.S. surface ship? And it's kind of funny here because uh, of course you have like all right, what, how far could the ship move, right? So there's some radius that the ship could be in. And then there's a radius of how far, how, how much can the seeker see, you know, to uh, detect and then track and then, you know, start honing in, right? So even, so like if the seeker can only see 50%, if the radius of the seeker is 50% that of the radius of the target location, so really it's only looking at like 25 to 30% of the area. And you have, a hundred percent probability of kill once the seeker, you know, finds the ship to get an 80% probability of damage. You still need 13 missiles at that, at that range or at that at, for those um, figures. And then it, it gets kind of funny here. I, I would like to actually see like the underlying, you know, model, but they say if the ratio of the missile kill radius to targeting location radius is one so the missile can see the same radius uh, that the the ship is in, then and the probability of kills a hundred percent. So the missile can see as far as like um, the same radius that the ship might be in, and it has a hundred percent probability of kill. You'll still need four missiles to go hit this thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. There's there's going to be a lot of challenges with that. It, it seems like China has not yet been you know saying. Hey, we're you know successfully destroying targets at sea in realistic situations with these with these systems, and they actually moved back to land based testing where they would move some targets around on like tracks and and stuff like that. But yeah, it's a, I guess it's a hard problem, you know, and they're going to need a a whole bunch of them potentially uh, to take something out. But I mean, if it's an aircraft carrier, you know, 13, 21 missiles, fifty five missiles, yeah. <laughs> it's worth it. We're throwing it at it. I mean, and this is also like, we talked about JADC2. This is sort of the, the almost like optimal scenario for when JADC2 is really critical because, you, you know, to get that target solution on a ship, you might need, you know, uh, vectors from multiple satellites. You might need it from like an overhead, uh, you know, air ISR asset. You might need it from, you know, radars over the horizon, radars or from from different assets that are in the area. So you might be getting vectors from from many different sources that need to be fused quickly um, and, you know, transmitted for that for that missile before it's launched and then give it give it the best, you know, best likelihood of getting into the area so that it actually can, you know, can achieve that effect. And so that's where JADC2 really becomes critical, the ability to get all that data really quickly to where it needs to go, be processed and, and sort of... Uh, you know, made useful. So it's kind of a, it's kind of, I think it's kind of one of the biggest challenges, right. In the South China Sea is, is this, this particular, particular thing, especially when you're operating at really long ranges and 
Yeah, the DF twenty one is actually fifteen hundred kilometers. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, the um, well, I guess that's the thing that the the Marine Corps guys, um, at least on all Marine radio, they hate, right? Like, find the target. It's not about find the target. Zero percent of my time was find the target. One hundred percent of my time was killing people. <laughs> you know, like stuff like that. All about finding the target, guys. Come on. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I'm also like. You know, I sympathize with that because like when I hear a lot of these discussions, it's all just like, oh, well, we need this, that, and the other. I think like in the Navy, when they're talking about what do we need for like autonomous systems? Oh, well, we need all of these for target location, right? Everything's about target location and then completing that kill chain. And there's a, there's a sense to that, but it's also like, what's this broader concept of, you know, resilience and getting people into fights and, you know, like things are just not going to work out that way. You're just going to lose all of your munitions super fast and you're just going to have to do things, you know, in a, in a different way or the dumb way, however, however much way, because you're going to lose those munitions super fast. Well, you're, you're that's not, that's not false. I mean, that's why we need all these different uh, production lines. <laughs> yeah. All right, last one we'll do. Stop calling switchblade drones is causing policy confusion. So this author here really does not like calling the switchblade and other loitering munitions just that, loitering munitions or kamikaze drones or what have you. He's saying they're not drones. And of course, his point is really, if you call it a drone, then it's like a UAV. And if we call this uh, switchblade here, a UAV is going to be impossible to export this and, and it's just going to cause a lot of problems. So he says... Quote, the differentiator is obvious. Munitions are designed to achieve kinetic effects through self-destruction. UAVs, on the other hand, are designed for reuse. And so uh, a switchblade and loitering munitions, those are uh, munitions, right? So I guess he does like the term loitering munition because it's a, mu- a munition. Right? It's, not a, it's not a drone. Yeah. You agree with that? No. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we should be careful with our language on a lot of this kind of stuff, I think, even... Even when we're talking about like a drone that's sort of like, uh, you know, like a predator drone versus like a drone that's actually sort of being commanded by uh, a nearby manned aircraft versus, you know, something that's more autonomous. Like we we do need to have these differentiators and they're, you know, in the scientific community, there actually are levels of autonomy and different things. And we probably need to be, you know, use those more and then, yeah, very, very, very rightly uh, differentiate from you know, from munitions that, that happen to use drone technology. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's all we got time for this week. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week, Matt. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again and until next time.